But I didn't edit them. I just opened them. Alec is stupid. Yes. <laughs> I'm definitely not going to get an argument from you there. <laughs> we can all agree. Outlook, dumb. And amazingly, rather than fix any of the actual problems with Outlook, they just continuously add features no one wants. Fix things? That takes work. You would think that adding things takes work as well. No, 1.0 is always going to be easier than 2.0. <laughs> I have started with nothing, and I've created something. Yes, sir, but what you created was a steaming pile of garbage that's actually on fire. Yes, and but in I, version two, but I made it. I make the fire bigger. <laughs> <laughs> now the fire's portable. I put it on a stick. What should I do with this can of gasoline? Oh, you should put that next to the stick. That's where it goes. That's what Perfect. we call a user experience. Ooh, ooh, ooh. We add a holder on the can of gasoline for the stick. Yes. That's convenience right there. Exactly. User, user experience. That's right. Our <laughs> users explode 30% faster. We delight our users by lighting them on fire. <laughs> we don't delight our users. We relight our users. <laughs> That's it. That's the tagline. <laughs> Oh my God, that's worth it. Yeah, yeah, how about that? So yeah, there's been this long running issue with Outlook and for I don't even know how long where I think it's a confusion between when you read things on like your phone and then the Outlook app on your desktop or laptop never really catches up to it. So it will show you the little icon that you have unread messages on the down the taskbar, but there are no unread messages in your inbox. Right. And then you just keep clicking and refreshing like a crazy person trying to figure out what the heck is going on. All you have to do is right click on inbox and and click uh mark all messages as read and it will clear that icon off of the taskbar. But it's it it shouldn't have to do that. Right. So like, maybe fix that, because that's been a bug since, I don't know, 10 years ago? <laughs> since uh, since being able to read your phone on a mobile device was a thing? Probably even before that. Quite possibly. I'm trying to remember what the protocol was for this. It was OA, but it wasn't Outlook Web App. It was actually called, it was the same acronym, but it stood for something else. Like the it was the original iteration of how you could offer webmail basically oh. through a mobile device, and I forget what it stood for. But then that was quickly replaced by ActiveSync, which everyone loved, universally loved by all. I don't know if Act ActiveSync was ever replaced by anything, or if most people just got shunted over to the Outlook app itself, which uses its own protocol for connecting which i don't remember the name of god i used to know all this crap when i was an exchange person and i think i've deliberately forgotten 90 percent of it i understand that and the other 10 percent you replaced with 3d printing would you like a taco little <laughs> <laughs> terraform taco <laughs> and we're making visual jokes on an audio platform or a big one i made this was the original model which I find delightful, but it also took like seven hours to print. Good and, Lord. 
and the, and the one that I scaled down by 50% takes, oh, I don't know, an hour to print. <laughs> so, and I can do a batch of six at a time. So. Welcome to the world of exponentials. Yes, it is fantastic. So I scaled it back and I'm also like, eh, you know, if I'm going to hand these out to people who want them, they might not want the giant one. They might just want like a little trinket, like a little thing they can throw in their bag and be like, look, I got this. So, right. Yeah. Because I'm adorable. What you want is everyone to have a very easy to carry around choking hazard. Yeah, absolutely. What's a better way to remember you forever than a stay <laughs> than in the emergency your room? dog? <laughs> here, here, Rover, look what I have. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh. oh. You know, rubbing it down with chicken fat was probably a bad idea. <laughs> Clara, call the pound again. <laughs> oh, hello, alleged human, and welcome to the Chaos Lever podcast. My name is Ned. I'm definitely not a robot. These fleshy appendages are suboptimal, I know, but I am their sole owner, and with their titanium alloy endoskeletal structure, they shall never be deconstructed. You know, Jewel and I have so much in common, don't you think? Don't you think, Chris? You're oh, here. Oh, I'm sorry. You said it was, you and Jewel had so much in common, so I was waiting for you to yodel. I have actually seen her in concert twice and both times she yodeled at one point oh oh i know it's kind of I know. that and mentioning that she lived in alaska and in a van at some point during her set i don't know if she still does this but back in 1990 what what, what uh <laughs> she said it an awful lot basically every interview and show she played yeah I mean, I get it. It was a, it was an inspiring rags to riches story and whatnot. But eventually, everyone already knew the story. So, I don't know. Jewel died for me the day that she got Invisalign. Oh yeah, that was that was quite the controversy. Just, no man, that's part of what makes you you. You know, get the Invisalign before you get famous. Dang it. <laughs> get the Invisalign before you can afford it. <laughs> that's how it works, right? This is America. Oh, it's a good thing we all have a dental plan and universal health care. Wait, no. No, it's the opposite. Okay. Well, anyhow, let's talk about some tech garbage. And you wrote, wow, you had feelings. Yeah, I had. This is a fun one in the sense that I wrote this about five times. So <laughs> let's just say in certain places, flow might be a problem. <laughs> It's fine. We'll have our editor take care of it. <laughs> Just like all those other times. I Note. sound like an unhinged lunatic. Note, he did not take care of it. <laughs> so I just wanted to talk about, um, actually, funnily enough, email and the history of and where we ended up. And one of the things that actually, unfortunately, drives email conversations, both political and technical. Mm. And that is Spam. The fight against spam has changed the way that we handle messaging. Spam-spam-spam-spam-spam-spam-spam-spam-spam-spam-spam-spam-spam-spam-spam-spam-spam-spam-spam-spam-spam-spam-spam-spam-spam-spam-spam-spam-spam-spam-spam-spam-spam-
So <laughs> chapter one, spam sucks. Mm. End of chapter one. No, I have a little bit more. Um, spam messages, really spam email is what we're talking about, but spam as a concept is pretty terrible no matter where you run into it. Even the grocery store there, I said it, don't at me. <laughs> spam messages are probably the bane of the internet's existence. To put it into perspective, spam in the internet world is like the real world's third-class mail. It gets sent out blindly to everyone, like current resident, for example, <laughs> clogs up your mailbox and is probably wholly and utterly useless at a minimum. Mm -hmm. It is also by far the largest percentage of messages that traverse the internet. According to Statista, in September of 2021, there was a daily average of 105 billion emails sent. So that number's bonkers enough. Mm. But here's where it gets not fun. Of those 105 billion messages, 89 billion were spam. And wow. Looking at several recent years of data, which Statista exists specifically so you can do that, oh. the average is consistent. Whatever the total number of emails sent, 90% or more is spam. I want to, I have some follow up questions that you may or may not have the answer to. Uh, question number one Does this include attempted sending of spam that's immediately rejected and never received by email servers? I believe that this is messages that were sent over the wire. Okay. So it may have been rejected by the by the recipient or the, the server that the, the recipient's mailbox resides on, but at least an attempt was made. Server-to-server -server communication happened. Okay. And second and more important follow-up question, is the other 10% largely forwards from my mother about things, <laughs> about microwave problems and saran wrap? Listen, if you don't send that email to 10 other people, the saran wrap will kill the microwave. <laughs> oh, saran wrap microwave murder. I'm going to put that into the uh, the AI bot and see what it spits out. Oh, my God, dude. I've been having so much fun with diffusion. Now I'm an I've artist now. I've changed all of my minds from last week. I'm an artist now. Excellent. So how do we get to this point? Hmm. One of the biggest problems is when the internet was created, it was created at a 1.0 model, meaning there was no security. All of the open primitive protocols that run the major sections of the internet, SMTP is what we're focusing on, but this could be applied to HTTP, even BGP, you know, the routing code of the internet has no inherent security built into it or them or they. Anyway, <laughs> they were built decades ago when people were starting from zero and were just like, the internet's an idea. Let's make an internet. Mm -hmm. So the one that is probably most familiar to people is HTTP versus HTTPS, right? Websites, port 80. HTTP is insecure, but HTTPS is secure. And by now, we all know, even your mother probably knows, Look for the little lock bar in the URL, right? You yeah. see the little green lock? It's a safe place. And we've gotten to the point where browsers will 
redirect you to HTTPS by default. Right. And in certain places, they can set it up so you can't do HTTP, period. So we're learning, right? Slowly. It took 25 years for this obvious thing to become obvious, but we're learning. I think one of the things is HTTP brings us web pages, and that's something that we deal with visually, graphically on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. SNTP is just as insecure. As a matter of fact, I think it's probably worse. All you have to do to send an email is log into a system with a mail server and type some commands in at the command line. You don't need to be root. You don't need to be honest. You don't even need to tell your sending server, tell them who I actually am. Use an Xcode and say that I am, you know, Joe Biden at whitehouse.gov. Mm -hmm. Today, I can send that email today. Yes. Because SMTP does nothing to verify that for you. Mm -mm. So because of that, bad actors figured out spam frighteningly quickly. So spam is bad. And it's been basically the biggest complaint of the internet ever. But the other downside of spam, of course, is the malicious software that inevitably comes along with it. Mm -hmm. I mean, regular advertising is bad enough, but when that advertising installs malicious software on your computer, I mean, that's just mean, man. People, they're the worst. I think we've, we've been over that before, right? Right. So the holy grail of email security has been patching the gigantic security holes that SMTP is. And we've come up with a lot. The big three are acronyms that anybody that works in IT, especially in messaging, have heard of. DKIM, DMARC, and SPF. Mm -hmm. And we don't need to go into exactly what these are and because I just don't want this to become like a tutorial and we don't have that much time. But basically, they try to define who's a valid server, who's a valid sender, are you getting an email from who they say they are. Right. All things that if they had been built into SMTP in the first place would be completely unnecessary. Yeah, I just but, to give you an idea, DKIM in, in particular is meant to verify that the sender of the email was actually an authorized owner of the domain. Who, the, the server that it was sent from was authorized by the person who owns that domain. So your example of I can send an email by from joe.biden at us.gov or whatever, whitehouse.gov. The originating server is not going to be able to sign that message with the DKIM because it does not have ownership of that domain. So it doesn't have the keys associated with that domain. So if the recipient server takes a look at that signature and tries to verify it against the public keys for that domain, the verification will fail and it will reject the message outright saying, you didn't sign this properly, so I'm rejecting it, no good. So that's like one, one form of protection amongst many that could be applied, which exists outside of SMTP. Right. And that's a, that's a good example too of what you were talking about at the very top, which is a ton of spam messages get sent that the users never see mm -hmm. because of things like that. The server-to-server -server communication still happens, but because that email these days in most domains would fail a DKIM uh, check, the email just doesn't go to the mailbox. Right. But that assumes that you have properly configured your domain to support DKIM and that the recipient server has enabled the DKIM checking and is enforcing it. Right. And we will get back to that at the bottom here. Small side, uh, what's it called when you do a side tour? 
when you do a diversion from your when you go a tangent tangent that's a good one yeah okay (laughs) so smtp being insecure is bad enough another problem is it's super easy to put a computer on the internet (laughs) incredibly easy (laughs) doing that safely however is hard keeping up with security making sure that the operating systems are still being supported and having regular security updates even applyable, let alone applied. Mm -hmm. Tons of hacks have made the news because people let Windows RDP have direct access to the internet, which even Microsoft is like, bro. Come on now. Compromised systems then become havens for botnets, in particular for what we're talking about today, botnets that send spam, which becomes a problem for potentially everyone on earth. Mm-hmm. which is amazing when it comes to scope. Think about it for a second. One lazy administrator puts a system online, decides, ah, this XP system is good enough. It'll be fine. If that gets hacked, literally anyone in the entire online world could suffer. And it's important to remember, it's not that one lazy admin set up an XP system and then is maintaining that system. It's more like one lazy consultant came in and set up a server for a you know small business and then walked away and that small business has been happily using that server for the last five to six to ten years and at this point it's totally unpatched and totally unmanaged but it just keeps working right it didn't it it worked yesterday works today it'll probably work tomorrow might be horribly compromised but as long as i can still run my transactions or like balance my quickbooks I have no idea. Does anyone smell fire? (laughs) So what you end up with, you have an insecure protocol and you have a world of insecure systems. This leads people to have to take drastic measures to protect email security, including the biggest providers of internet, the biggest providers of email in the world. (laughs) Now, we talked about a couple of them. The, the big three particularly, but there are actually a ton of tools out in the world at all levels to protect people from spam, or at least to try to. Mm-hmm. There are individual email scanning tools that exist that will read the email that comes in if it passes all the other tests and try to determine if it's legitimate. And a lot of O365 and Gmail protections work like this. When you click the, quote, this is spam button, what happens is it gets put into the learning pool for some AIML algorithm that will continually read such messages to keep their recipes current. Mm-hmm. So you're always a little bit behind, but let's like say for an example, spammer sends out 1 million messages. The first 500 or 5,000 people that read it click, this is spam. The rest of them are going to never, ever see that message because the AI and ML lists have been updated. So unfortunately, those first 5,000 are going to get dinged, but after that, you've got a new rule. Mm-hmm. So that's helpful, but the biggest hammer that email providers bring in the fight against spam is the real-time blacklist, or the RBL for short. This is also often done by automated process. And what happens here is a system listens not for individual emails, but individual providers. If too many messages get marked as spam from IP address 1.2.3.4, that email or that IP address gets blacklisted. That means it gets thrown on the RBL list and says, this is a bad domain. Mm -hmm. Thus, 
any email provider who subscribes to that RBL will then automatically discard any email from that IP address. I feel like that's a system ripe for abuse. It kind of is. Problem is, it also works. <laughs> works in quotes. <laughs> well, you know, I think you you said the biggest hammer, and I think that's a very appropriate metaphor for this. This is not a fine in, fine uh, motor skill instrument that you're using to extract, you know, the tiniest thing out. It, this is literally a giant sledgehammer you're using to deal with the problem. And right. unfortunately, it's going to slam the good with the bad if it's within a, a particular IP address or a block of IP addresses that has been marked as blacklisted. If I was someone who wanted to prevent another system from sending emails, say maliciously, I could send spam with a spoofed IP address of their IP address block and get them on an RBL. Right. Or if it was a company that was large enough and had an attack surface that was malleable, shall we say, <laughs> you could create what we just talked about, a spam botnet that would send emails out from that IP block. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's frustrating is there are so many servers and so many emails that are sent. This cannot be a human problem. It has to be automated. So one of the biggest problems with RBLs is the ads to the system are automated. The removes from the system are not. Mm -hmm. But getting removed from an RBL can be hard. If you have ever gotten on an RBL working at a company, you know how horribly frustrating it is to get yourself off of that if you happen to be hosting your own email server. And since right. I've been... <laughs> <laughs> One of those people trying to get off the RBL, I can tell you that it is not pleasant and sometimes costs money. Right. And the other thing is a lot of the times, RBLs will subscribe to each other. Mm -hmm. So it's not like there's just RBL.com. There are tons of these that exist. Yes. You can go on MX Toolbox and... Among, aside from also having it being able to verify your MX records and a whole bunch of other stuff, it will also tell you if you're on any blacklists and which ones they are. And there's like a hundred of them. Right. Probably all feeding off of each other. <laughs> yeah. So getting on to an RBL, probably like one, maybe even a four hour block of bad behavior. Mm -hmm. Getting off of one, maybe just go be a swimming instructor instead. <laughs> Maybe. So one of the things that this huge, heavy-handed approach does is encourage people only to use a few gigantic email providers. Mm -hmm. Now, you hinted at this before, but let's just do a quick overview. When a company gets an IP address, they usually don't just get one IP. They usually get a bunch blocked out in C classes, X amount of them. That means there's about 250-odd IPs that could be used by company X. Mm -hmm. So if one IP in a spamming company got blacklisted and that spamming company had 250 other IPs to use, they could just change the number by one and get right back to spamming. Mm -hmm. The RBL gets ahead of this by blacklisting the entire C-class. Fun. <laughs> and remember, IPv4 space is pretty limited. I mean, we've seen reports a ton of times over the past five years that IPv4 is completely exhausted. So you can imagine that eventually most of the space is going to be compromised, which is exactly what happened. 
Right. And even the assumption that a company has a C-class is might be an erroneous assumption. So that 24 that 24 bit address space may have been broken into smaller allocations that were resold to other companies and you may end up on an RBL for the bad behavior of another company that's using another piece of that larger C class block. Yeah, that's exactly true. And for a lot of people this also happens if you want to run your own server. So <laughs> the same thing will happen with blocks of addresses that form your residential IP. Bad neighbor is a spammer. Well, guess what? Now the rest of you are not going to get online at all because your addresses are RBL'd. Now, first of all, you should check to see if your residential terms of service even allow you to run servers. TLDR, they probably don't. Mm -hmm. But I will bet you dollars to donuts that most people's IPs are already blacklisted for exactly that reason. Yeah. I mean, it sucks for you as an individual who wants to like explore running your own server, but from the macro perspective, it's just easier. What ends up happening is you cause people to give up on the concept of self-hosting email altogether. So first of all, running a server is a pain in the ass. Any server. But running an email server is its own beautiful nightmare. Now, I had this exact same process a while back when I was setting up all of the things for my own domain. I don't know about you, but I never seriously considered self-hosting anything, be it the website or the email server. My website, the website runs out of Azure Static, and the email is hosted by ProtonMail. So that's where my experience ends when it comes to configuring email. I set up my account, I check a few boxes, I verified my DNS, and then I waited. Yeah. About an hour later, my email worked. I got all the greens from the DKIMs and the DMARCs and the SPFs and the RSTLNEs and the ROFL BBQs. Everything was great. But the thing about it is that was it. I didn't have to actually set up DMARC. Mm -hmm. I just had to click a button that said, I'm going to do it and I'm going to do the text field like you told me to. Yep. So my assumption as somebody that has run email servers in the past is that actually running it is also more complicated than that. It would safe to be say so to say so as someone who has not touched an email server in five years, probably maybe more, at least five years. I, I don't know what the steps are to properly set up DKIM or uh, well, I know how to set up SPF, but DKIM or DMARC for an exchange server. I'm sure there's a process, but honestly, the vast majority of places I went to that did host their own email servers had uh, some sort of other service that was proxying the outbound and inbound of their email, some third-party spam detection device that would filter mail both coming in and going out. And it would probably be the thing that's actually responsible for a lot of that. Right. That's probably true too. But Having doing it that way just adds an extra layer of complexity. Absolutely. Now you have another thing to manage and pay for. Yes. And what ends up happening is people's frustration starts to mount. And if they are, in fact, security-minded and responsible, they want to take these things seriously. It starts to become overwhelming. It becomes a full-time job. And then all of a sudden, you're thinking, you know what? Forget about it. Let's just go with O365. $5 per user per month is not a terrible trade-off if it means you don't have to worry about any of that stuff ever. Because you know who's not going to get RBL'd? Office.com. 
It's unlikely. Yeah. So that's the problem or the problems as I see them. So now let's pivot a little bit and think about how to fix the problem. Well, I want to back up for a second because you presented the case with some amounts of lamentation that it was a net bad thing that it was so difficult to host your own email server. Why Why do you think that that is net a bad thing as opposed to just the natural passage of time and the specialization of services? Well, I mean, I think it's a net bad thing in a couple of, way, a couple of ways. One of them is you could do this work, especially if you're a beginner, you could do this work and be RBL'd and have no idea why your email's not working and get beyond frustrated for things that are outside of your control and as of yet, you do not understand. Mm -hmm. You know, we're in a very different world than when you and I were growing up back in the early 30s and setting up a system online was like a fun way to learn. Yes. Because you didn't have the whole world trying to hack everyone else in the whole world. <laughs> it's true. It just wasn't like that. You know, we started from scratch. At least I did, like setting up BBSs, setting up servers that were online for the first time. It's not the same process as, oh, I'm running my website out of an Azure static application. Right. The, the fact that you could set up a server with the public IP address and, you know, have it somewhat accessible by the rest of the world and not have it immediately hacked. <laughs> that was uh that was a nice time. That was that was a privileged position we were in. And now, I mean, if you just go to, you know, AWS or Azure, set up a Windows server and open up port 3389 and then just collect the metrics on how often that port gets hit. It is absurd and it starts happening immediately. So in the Linux class that I do, I do that as a live example. I spin up a server that's got an open log listener and we just watch and wait. And it's like five minutes. <laughs> I'm surprised it takes that long. Um, and that's a problem when we talk about email in specific. So if you try to set up your own private email server in AWS, forget it, you're blacklisted. Mm -hmm. Most of the addresses in all the major cloud providers are automatically blacklisted because so many bad actors have glommed onto an IP, been horrible, got blacklisted, glommed onto another IP, rinse and repeat. Right. So it's another another reason that's a problem is some people don't want their email elsewhere. Like even ProtonMail is specifically built and has a security privacy philosophy. I think at this point, everybody knows that Gmail reads every single thing that you read or write. ProtonMail doesn't do that, but it's still in the hands of somebody else permanently. And mm -hmm. if ProtonMail goes out of business, then all of your ability to communicate with customers or friends or colleagues just disappears. You know, And the fact that this problem exists means that we are kind of beholden to the massive providers because they're the ones that will never get blacklisted. Google's not gonna get blacklisted. Yeah, I think to a certain degree, I worry about that less since I own my own domain. So in that sure. regard, I can move that to a different name server. I can move where my email is hosted, but you're right in the sense that the data that's in my email, that is not always stored locally. Some of that is being archived back to the server. I don't have a complete copy of it right now. And if something were to happen to Office 365, the whole thing tomorrow went, 
I know that's unlikely, <laughs> but it could happen, then I would be missing a large chunk of my email that I wouldn't be able to recover. Right. Well, first of all, $5 in the sin jar for not backing up your email. <sighs> I but the other thing is, anything. all of the things <laughs> that you just said, you own your you own your um, own domain, which is good. First of all, if O365 goes away, you need to notice that. You <laughs> might not notice that. I, I know most people don't think this, but sometimes Ned leaves the basement. Mm -mm. Once you notice it, you've got to get back to a computer a computer that's got access to all of the different codes that you need to move a DNS address. You've got to find and organize that new email service. You've got to redo all of the things for DMARC and SPF and DKIM and ABC, RST. And then you've got to wait for it all to work again. So you're still going to have a period of significant downtime where your emails are going to bounce and users or friends or colleagues or customers are just not going to know what's going on. So while it's a small risk, I think it's a legitimate risk and a significant one, more, probably more significant to some people than to others. I think you could also take the philosophical view of the internet that it was intended to be designed, it was intended to be available to anyone, that anyone could stand up a server and host services and make them available to the larger internet to build a worldwide web. <laughs> that included both websites and email and other services. And the unfortunate fact of the matter is for a large portion of the world, that do-it-yourself ethos is no longer available. You have to go. Well, you don't have to, but you basically have to go through one of the large providers if you do want to host a website or email or you know plug in whatever service you were thinking about hosting. Right. And actually, uh, it's not in here, but since you asked, um, this is part of my my tin my my tin hat my tin foil hat philosophy is that the major providers are completely fine with that. Oh yeah, no, it doesn't. I don't think it bothers them at all because it benefits them. Exactly. So I mean, the thing is, we've been talking about fixing or replacing SMTP for a long time. I am not the first person to recognize that there's problems with SMTP. There are articles in archives and internet searches you can do and find things like replacing SMTP, a proposal. That one's from 2006. <laughs> so this ain't new. No. We already talked about the ways we can augment it with the various tools that we can add on or glom on. There are tons more that we don't have time to get into. I mean, one for security is especially enterprise level solutions have object character recognition that is sophisticated enough to literally read PDFs and attachments. That's a thing we had to build for security purposes. And they work. They're mm -hmm. not cheap. Nope. <laughs> they work. The reality of the situation, though, is philosophical. If we as a society rejected the idea that SMTP should mean automatic acceptance of an unsolicited message from a stranger... As another one of those think pieces, this time from 2008, states, quote, the reason that spam exists is that you can exchange mail with people you don't already know. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's it. That's the story. If SMTP had been designed from the beginning with a default deny as its concept, the whole world of messaging would be different. SMTP, unfortunately, is designed with a default allow. 
Hence, spam is possible. And if it wasn't for the scourge of spam, none of the SMTP security stuff we were talking about before would matter nearly as much. It would still be important, mm -hmm. but without the reason for it, which spam is the reason for a lot of this email security, it wouldn't be as big of a deal. We definitely wouldn't need the huge real-time blacklist that attempt to disable spammers with the technical equivalent of a nuclear bomb. <laughs> because think about it. If everyone on Earth ran servers and interacted with servers that were on a default deny protocol, and an email didn't come from a known good address, that email would go nowhere. Or maybe it would go into a quarantine folder, but it would not automatically pop up in your inbox without any questions asked. Yeah, I mean, you said that if there was a default deny for SMTP, then the world would be a very different place. Now, I, I agree with that statement. I don't necessarily know that it would be better because one of the benefits of email is that you can receive a message from someone that you haven't communicated with before. And if they need to reach out to you and they don't have another way of doing it, how are they going to get on your good list to allow that email? Now, that's a good question. And I think there's a fair point there. Um, and the example that I want to use is recently, I went to a security conference. And I did not go to any of the, the vendors because I don't believe in the exhibition room. <laughs> you just it's creepy and weird <laughs> and everyone smiles way too big. Mm -hmm. So nobody scanned my badge, not one time. Yet I have been deluged with people who are sending me messages saying, it was so great to meet me at the security conference. <laughs> that does not help me. No. However, if I were to have gone to, I don't know, uh, let's pick up Huntress. If I had gone to Huntress's booth and had a conversation with them and was like, you know what? I'm interested. Let's learn more. This is my email or this is my secret code or this is my pin or whatever mechanism would be transmitted by individual communication. Then when I get emails from Huntress, it's because I agreed to them in the first place. So that doesn't qualify in my head as spam. Now I know it's gotta be a little bit more elegant than that because what if this was some, I don't know, I watched a webinar from somebody who lives in California or in Europe and it being in person is never gonna happen. Mm -hmm. So I think I'm missing a step. I will agree with you there. I think it could be a similar situation like and I'm going to say Facebook but but stick with me on this. Not the not the rest of Facebook, but the idea that someone can request to be your friend. I can request to send you email. And if I right. and if I the other side of the equation say no, I don't want to be your email friend, then you will never be able to send me email. Right. And I think that's part of the the deal is that it doesn't have to be a gigantic sophisticated bulletproof guardrail. It just has to be not nothing. <laughs> it also has to be decentralized to a certain degree because putting these protocols in place would not be wouldn't wouldn't be trivial for the big three or the big five or whatever, but it's something they could do. But then it would be in it would be the custom code that they put in place to make all this stuff available. And what you need is an open source decentralized solution that getting back to the original ethos of the internet, anyone can host and make email friends. Right. And so that actually brings us to what might be next week's Chaos Lever. I want to talk about 
the W3C ratification of the decentralized identity standard. Ooh. Yeah. Interesting. Cool it's almost like we planned this. <gasps> Definitely not. <laughs> no, yes. Yes, we did. Editor, remember to edit that out. <laughs> he, Editor, he note, didn't. he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's just there's got to be some small bumps in the road that make it just aggravating enough that bad actors will give up on the idea of spam. So here's one that's super unpopular. Why is email free? It's not. I pay $5 a month for it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but if you, you pay $5 a month for a mailbox, from right. that mailbox, you can send zero messages or 10 billion messages. I think they, uh, might, they might block me if I send 10 billion. You're right, 9 billion. <laughs> but the point is a bad actor with an IP address can send out literally millions of messages in a matter of seconds. Mm -hmm. Even if 0.001% of those messages are actually acted upon by the credulous or the mistaken or the possibly inebriated, the bad actor wins, mm -hmm. right? If that bad actor had to spend, I don't know, one-tenth of one penny per email they sent, that's a different equation entirely. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden the value changes from these emails are free to these emails are costing me. And even if it's only based on my example from up top, that would mean something like $86 million daily in revenue from that volume were it to continue. But I think you and I both know what would happen. The volume of spam email would fall through the floor. Oh my God, have we just found a use for cryptocurrency? <laughs> God, it's on the blockchain. <sighs> so like I said, I don't have all of the answers. These are just things that came to my mind while I was thinking about this problem. And that's what I came up with is we just need to put enough of a hassle in the way of bad actors that spam becomes not worth it. Precisely. It needs to be something where if you are only sending 100 emails a day, and that's probably a lot for most people. It won't be that much of a hassle. It won't get in the way of your workflow. But if you're sending 100,000 emails a day, it would. Right. And I don't want it to become a circular conversation, but the solution also has to be applicable to anyone that wants to set up an email server. Because mm -hmm. the Googles and the Microsofts of the world are going to be like, we have exactly the idea. Everyone can only use our services to send email. <laughs> Well, shit. <laughs> that was not what we wanted. <laughs> <laughs> Monkey paw curls. Hmm. So that's why I think the, the problem has to come down to fixing SMTP as a concept and as email as a philosophy. Once we get past those hurdles, then whatever comes up shouldn't be onerous. It should just be enough to dissuade people from doing the wrong thing. Precisely. All right. Well, we fixed it. Good job, everybody. High five. Woo. Ooh. Lightning round? I think I broke. Oh, yeah. Lightning round. Okay. The storage was within you all along. There are many mediums to store data on. Magnetic tape, optical platters, spinning rust, solid state memory, etc. As we approach the era of the Yadabyte, there is an ever- uh, 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 I, 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 What? The Yadabyte. That's what we're calling it? Do you do you know what a Yadabyte is? Is it like a donut? Like a small donut? 
No, it, it is definitely not that. It's two to the 80th power bytes. It's like a lot. It's, like, it's like a lot, a lot. Now, I, okay, we're, sorry. Sorry, you totally derailed the whole thing. <laughs> it's fine. I was just going to make fun of the name, and you were like, no, let me explain everything in the whole world. It is a real thing. It's a theoretical thing at this point, because we have not hit a yada byte. But, you know, as we approach that historical milestone of data that has been produced by humanity, there is an ever-growing need to store data more densely, packing the bits as close together as we can. One possible storage medium has actually been in use for billions of years, and it is the humble DNA molecule. You know that thing that encodes the genetic instructions for this crazy thing we call life? Yeah, that's the one. You might wonder how much data could be housed in the humble double helix. According to DNA storage company Catalog Technologies, we are talking about 200 petabytes per gram of DNA and a shelf life of thousands of years. The main use case for this type of storage is long-term archives, similar to how most magnetic tape is used today, except way more stable. Magnetic tape has a shelf life of about 30 years and a much higher density. Catalog uses prefabricated DNA strands corresponding to a set of binary values. They use those prefabricated strands, like blocks in a printing press, to assemble larger strands of encoded data. At the moment, the process of writing data is slow by today's standards, a few megabytes per day. Catalog is working on a prototype robot that can speed things up to a terabyte a day, Still paltry compared to the 160 zettabytes the world generates every year. Reading the data requires a DNA sequencer to read the strands and decode them back to a digital format. Catalog is well aware of DNA's current limitations, so they have recently partnered with erstwhile storage giant Seagate to collaborate on a more compact and efficient solution using Seagate's lab-on-a-chip technology. Even if the solution never replaces traditional SSDs and spinning rust, it could provide a robust, long-term solution for storing your data in a decentralized manner. All those names are fake. Moving on. <laughs> Apple release event goes, well, exactly like everyone knew that it was gonna. Mm -hmm. Seriously, it's 2022. Is there any purpose to these big product launches anymore? Oh, what are we even doing? All of the products are being not so secretly A-B tested for months beforehand via tactical insider info or a prototype device that just happens to be left at the bar right next to someone with a Gizmodo badge. Whoopsie. I mean, come on. <laughs> As such, there were no big surprises at the Apple Far Out event. The new iPhone 14 will have a staggering 48 megapixel camera and a new re-architected user interface thingamajig called Dynamic Island that minimizes the annoyance of the notch. In an interesting development that I have to think about further, all iPhone 14s and all iPhones going forward will operate without a physical SIM card. Now, this could be problematic as not every cellular provider on earth supports eSIM all that well. The tin hat in me says this is just a way to get travelers to buck up for some kind of roaming program, from Apple of course, instead of just buying a temporary SIM when they get to the airport for pennies on the dollar. 
Apple Watch has a new release as well, including a higher tier version meant for extreme sports such as mountain climbing, scuba diving, etc. Dubbed the Ultra, it is built way more durably than the standard Apple Watch with a bigger battery, larger screen, better waterproofing, temperature resistance, and a more accurate GPS. Interestingly, both the new iPhone and the new watch will be able to send SOS alerts and find my device data via satellite. Also, interestingly, one thing Apple didn't do is raise prices. Hmm. The iPhone 14 will be $799, the Pro version will be $999, and the phablet-sized Pro Max will ring in at $1,099. If you're keeping score at home, these are the same prices the current models retailed for when they were released. Now, this might be another good way for Apple to keep the good times rolling. In a quasi-related story, Apple's iPhone user base now makes up over 50% of the total smartphone market. Oh, and iOS 16 is going to come out on September 12th, so I guess that's probably important too. I don't know. Everyone says. It gives me hope that the forthcoming Pixel phones that are going to be released in October will also not have a price hike because they do have to maintain uh, right. you know, parity with whatever Apple does. Accuracy actually matters. Who knew? <laughs> not the ISPs. You know all those neato maps that the ISPs show you about their coverage and speeds? Well, those are basically bullshit. The reason they've been able to get away with it is a lack of accurate information about where broadband is available in the U.S. and what speeds are offered. The Federal Communications Commission, you know, the folks who are supposed to oversee the ISP's operations, have never had a factual broadband map of the country, relying on ISPs to provide census block-level information based on Form 477 data collection program. That means... If a single house is served in an entire census block, then the ISP can claim that the whole block is served. Isn't that nice? In 2019, the FCC voted to require ISPs to submit data that was, you know, like accurate. Despite extraordinary belly aching from the ISP lobby, the vote passed and then was reinforced by an act in Congress passed in late 2020. In November of this year, the FCC will finally have an updated map based on the data collected over the last three years, and they will use that map to distribute $42 billion from the Broadband Equity Access and Deployment Program. Will the new map put an end to the grift and outright fraud perpetuated by the Broadband Consortium? (laughs) Heavens no. They love the monies. However, it will give the FCC some serious ammunition in combating said tomfoolery and at least attempt to keep the ISPs honest about the broadband capability claims. The ISPs, for their part, will be required to submit updates on a semi-annual basis and the public will be able to challenge data they feel are incorrect. Hooray for the FCC? That feels slightly better now that Ajit Pai is out and will hopefully never be heard from again. Hopefully, indeed. IRS to, quote, look into setting up free e-filing system. It's time for my semi-annual TurboTax ruins everything and probably doesn't need to exist as a company update. This time with federal funding. 
Due to the passing of the recent Inflation Reduction Act, the IRS now has a renewed mandate to work on getting their systems to a point where average Americans could easily file online for free. This mandate has been around forever, but this time they also have something else. Hmm. Money. Oh. $15 million worth of it to be precise. For literally decades, private companies such as TurboTax and H&R Block have lobbied successfully to prevent this very thing from happening. So the process is longer, more difficult, and more expensive for literally everyone. Also, this insistence on forcing Americans to do their own taxes makes the IRS themselves less efficient. Mm-hmm. Ah, capitalism. Now, there are services that exist, such as freetaxusa.com or OLT, that can help you file as an individual for free. There's even a legally mandated free TurboTax out there, but good luck finding it. Seeing how America is one of the only countries in the world that does things in this insanely backwards way, and seeing how there are like grandmothers on TikTok now, I think the time for this 1980s technology to be retired and online filing to be a thing is now. Mm. More and more states are requiring companies to post salary ranges for jobs. Hey, did you know that it is, in fact, not illegal to discuss your salary with coworkers? In fact, if you are punished for it, your employer will be in violation of the National Labor Relations Act. Now, this hasn't stopped tons of employers from trying, of course. This lack of transparency is manifestly better for businesses than it is for the people they employ, as keeping salaries secret enables them to underpay some employees or even play favorites and massively overpay others. The disparity is particularly egregious in IT positions, as these often come with much higher than average salaries. The governments of multiple states are working to level this playing field. It's already the law in Colorado that job descriptions must have an accurate salary range attached to them, and California and New York are following suit. Unsurprisingly, business groups are crying about it, saying things like the disclosure would be difficult, if not impossible and that it would be an administrative burden to keep track of all the data. They thought about saying something like, we like it best when we can take advantage of our employees and pay them as little as possible, but that ended up not making it into the press release. They just thought it, really loudly. This is going to be interesting, especially in light of the changing work environment where a job in California could reliably be staffed by a remote worker, say, in Wyoming. And I'd venture to say that this is really why the business community is against disclosure and remote work. Because if they can find a way to pay someone in Wyoming less to do the same job, you and I both know that they absolutely would. Bitwarden gets $100 million investment from Venture Capital. Christopher has second thoughts about migrating to Bitwarden. Mm. Bitwarden, we barely knew ye. Okay, well, to be fair, Bitwarden has been around for like six years as a project, and I only started looking into them recently. So I guess it's that I barely knew ye. I didn't know them at all. (laughs) Best known as a high-quality and open-source password management provider, Bitwarden has recently secured a $100 million Series B investment from Battery Ventures and PSG. 
In their press release, Bitwarden stressed that they had major plans to, quote, invest wisely in new features such as secretless management and passwordless technologies. They also state that some of the unique things that people really like about Bitwarden, such as a robust free tier of service, open source mindset, and the ability to self-host their product if you want to, will remain. Time will tell if they keep those promises. The press release says that the current management team will stay in charge of the company, but something tells me that that $100 million is also going to get a vote. <laughs> this actually happened with 1Password, another password manager company which did a Series C funding in January. According to one random user's opinion, thank you, internet, 1Pass customers are, quote, in the middle of getting burned by 1Password spending millions to make our app run worse and do less. Incidentally, apparently Scarlett Johansson is another investor in 1Password, so that's a thing I know now. <laughs> I, for one, am going to just keep holding off on Bitwarden for a little while until I see which way the wind ends up blowing here. It is deeply concerning that a VC is involved in what is ostensibly a very simple product and a very simple market. We probably won't have long to wait to determine if they just start using and abusing it to penetrate adjacent markets with synergistic commonalities or some such sadness. Mm. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> oh, hey, thanks for listening or something. I guess you found it worthwhile enough if you made it all the way to the end. So congratulations to you, dear friend. You've accomplished something today. Now cancel your travel plans, eat spicy ramen, and stare into the abyss until it has consumed you entirely you become one with it, forever entwined in a black spiral of despair, awash in a sea of infinity, an intangible moat waiting to be extinguished. <coughs> no, wait, no, that's just indigestion. You can find me or Chris on Twitter at Ned1313 and at Hainer80 respectively, or follow the show at chaos underscore lever if that's the kind of thing you're into. Show notes are available at chaoslever.com if you like reading things, which you shouldn't. We'll be back next week to see what fresh hell is upon us. Ta-ta for now. It was the hot sauce, wasn't it? You ate too much hot sauce. There's no such thing.